Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu. And what are we doing this time around? Well, it's another Warhammer episode. I'm going to wrap it around a group from Age of Sigmar called the Flesh Eater Courts. Pretty grim stuff, I hear you say. Absolutely. So we're basically talking about vampires here. And please, if you're not really into Warhammer... I've got some cool stuff to tell you about vampire lore, which is going to lead into some potential reading for you if you like the world of vampires, and it will have nothing to do with Vlad the Impaler. I give you a 100% Vlad-free episode. So this is a really fun one because I get to touch on a woman from history, which has led to a decades-long, or indeed centuries-long debate around her. So I will give you the evidence from both sides and you by the end of this podcast you'll make your own decisions about it okay and also i get to tell you about my hobby which as people know i like warhammer and also i'm going to be able to tell you about a controversy around the makers of warhammer games workshop as well and also like i say perhaps one of their greatest moments as well. So loads of stuff to pack into this particular episode. I hope you enjoy it. So, where to start with this one? Well, for starters, they weren't always called the Flesh Eater Courts. As I have said before, there are two basic flavours of Warhammer. There's the futuristic one called Warhammer 40,000. Aliens, spaceships, laser guns. Really not doing that justice, but anyway. And I've spent quite a lot of time talking about that one. Overall, I'm going to guess that that one, Warhammer 40,000, is the better-loved one or better well-known. Literally, Space Marines are the poster boy of Warhammer, after all. And then we've got the Yoldi world version. Think dragons and bows and arrows and stuff like that. And that's called, nowadays, Age of Sigmar. Now, Age of Sigmar is, at time of recording, I'm going to guess about eight, nine years old. And it came in to take over the Old World, or Warhammer Fantasy Battle, as it was called then, because they wouldn't call it the Old World. And the reason for this, and it's actually led to Games Workshop saying, hey, we're going to re-release a new version of the Old World to keep people happy, basically. What the Old World is to Age of Sigmar, that's kind of what the Horus Heresy is to Warhammer 40,000. If you love your Warhammer, That'll make sense. If not, I'm moving on immediately. But 
basically there was an old way to play the game then they had this whole campaign where that entire world was kind of destroyed and broken up and some heroes died and other people were sort of completely transformed into something else and then there was a completely new way to play the game now the practical reasons for this were basically twofold one it had been around for decades and the models hadn't changed radically so people weren't buying as much of it it's like i've got a massive 3000 point bretonian army good for you great it looks fabulous well done on the paint jobs but from the point of view of games workshop it's like well you don't need to buy any more of that there do you want to buy another army no i love my bretonian knights okay well we're a business we do need to sell stuff so by completely shaking up the law l-o-r-e then they were able to bring in entirely new armies and break up some of the old armies some of them still exist the skaven which i am a huge fan of the rat men they haven't changed much between both versions but almost everything else has so that's one part of why it changed on the practical financial business side and on the other side it got complicated so you've all seen images of old and when i mean old i mean sort of like think of like 1500s 1600s 1700s type battles where people are in like great big squares of pikemen or you know great long lines of riflemen and big clumps of cavalry and that's absolutely the way people used to fight in the olden days and therefore with warhammer fantasy battle they had square bases so you could line them up in rectangles it was about these blocks of troops so not only did you have to have the rules about what do you have to roll to hit if i'm charging into you for example but also if you could get round me if you could hit me from behind there would be various bonuses i'm now being attacked in my vulnerable flanks that should be reflected in the rules but this meant that there were multiple different layers of rules depending on which angle you were literally attacking people and also huge clumps of people together visually on the board isn't very interesting can you see the detail that i painted on the belt of the guy right in the middle of the blob of troops no not really so why did i bother spending time painting that for that reason as well it was really unwieldy it was kind of user unfriendly hi i'm a 10 year old and i really want to get into warhammer okay here is the huge rule book read all that understand that and now you can play i'm going to do something else so there was a very high barrier for entry basically in terms of just rule reading forget about pricing so of all those reasons it was streamlined it was made a bit more epic we went to circular bases so things could be spread out more and so on so forth. and so there used to be a number of undead type armies traditionally amongst gamers when it comes to the undead you tend to talk about wet armies and dry armies what do you mean by that well the dry armies would be something like a whole bunch of skeletons like in warhammer fantasy battle the tomb kings which just imagine a whole skeleton army with a kind of ancient egyptian aesthetic going on there in the more recent age of sigmar there isn't actually a skeleton army anymore what you do have is three different types of groups and there are sort of skeletons in two of them so they're kind of being incorporated into other areas let's go back so you've got skeletons they're dry the other ones that you could argue are dry are kind of ghosts because you know they're ghosts they don't really you can't really touch them and then there's the wet armies which are like the zombies and the vampires so you can imagine there's going to be a fair amount of ichor and blood and stuff like that hanging around all over the place so the vampires absolutely existed in warhammer fantasy battle 
but they've been kind of updated and changed a little bit for the Age of Sigmar, and that is what the Flesh Eater Courts are. So this is also going to allow me to talk a little bit about feudalism as well in a bit, because the wonderful idea that they come up with is, yeah, these people are creatures of the night, and yes, their followers are literally flesh-eating zombies, but they were once aristocrats, and so they still have this kind of aristocratic tendencies, if you like. They're kidding themselves that they're still basically count this or baron that, and and really, whereas you are a borderline feral creature of the night feeding on human blood, their attitude is more like, oh, pass me the champagne, and oh, yes, I've read a very good book recently. So they're almost like lying to themselves, which is a, a wonderful idea. And I thoroughly love painting this stuff. A little bit now on like how I paint them. Obviously, if people wear armor, you tend to paint it in like a metal, metallic color, because in the real world, that's what they did. But because of the Bram Stoker movie, the Dracula movie, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Do you remember that one, which had Keanu Reeves in it? Mm, yeah. Right at the beginning, we get to see... Sorry, I'm going to break my promise here. We briefly see Vlad the Impaler. I got past that very quickly. Listen, don't mention the war. I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it all right. And rather than wearing traditional, like, knightly armour, he's sort of wearing this kind of blood-red armour, which almost looks like the musculature underneath the skin. It looks sensational. I didn't, you've never seen anything like that on the, on the screen before, and that's heavily influenced the kind of armour and painting styles of the, the vampires in the Flesh Eaters' courts. So, for example, a couple of years ago, they brought out a new kind of cavalry. And so what did I do? I'll give you the very quick painting thing. So, obviously, I built it. But then I sprayed the whole thing a base color of red. So that's the armor covered, which is, let's say, two-thirds of the figure is already got the right base color. Now, for the, like, bony legs and things like that, I would basically paint them a very, very light gray and then cover them in this very thin brownish wash, basically. It's called a contrast paint called Skeleton Horde. And it really does look like, if you've ever seen the gravy you can get from KFC, Skeleton Horde paint looks exactly like that. Uh, you slop it over, and basically, because it's quite thin, the darker bits of it go into the recesses, and it sort of it doesn't stick too much on the on the upper parts of the of the figure. And so, if you're doing something like a skull, or in this case, a horse's skeletal leg, that's it. I I paint it a light what a light grey, put on the contrast paint, done. It now looks like bone. It's a really clever, really easy way of doing it. And so, with all the armor. It's already red, and I want it to be red, but then I cover it again with one of these very thin paints or wash called Agrax Earthshade, if you really care about this stuff, which is a very dark brown, but again, it's very thin, so it gives it a sense of shade, a sense of proportion to it. So the dark recesses, which would be in shadows, now has some Agrax in them, and then the lighter top bits doesn't have it, so already it looks pretty good, and then I dry brush it. What does that mean? You get a wedge-shaped paintbrush, you dip it in to paint, which is obviously, I say obviously, it's, it has to be a lighter color than the base color red. So in this case, it's called Wild Rider Red, which think of a very orangey red. And you dip it into the paint, but then you wipe off most of the paint. So there's hardly any paint left on the paintbrush. And then you very lightly just brush it over the figure. So in other words, the only place the, the paint is going to catch on is the sticky out bits. So if you think of the the creases in maybe you're wearing a shirt right now, but if you just look at your arm, 
you'll see that the higher bits are a lighter colour and the grooves inside the, the folds are a darker colour. And so with just three things, base red, followed by an Agrax wash, followed by dry brushing in Wild Rider Red, done. Now, that is nowhere near what the greatest artists in the world of figure painting can do, but I'm happy with it. And it looks pretty good on the tabletop as well. And for their skin, that's also super easy. Again, I painted that very light gray color, gray sear if you care. Then once again, I get the Agrax out. So basically what I do is I spray the whole thing red, then I paint the various bits I need to, that light white. Then I get out the Agrax and just slop it everywhere. And it doesn't matter if it goes on their face because I need the Agrax on their face anyway. This is why it's easy to do. I'm all about easy painting. You can get these amazing tutorials online which show you how to spend literally half an hour to amazingly get pupils on the eyes of a head that is tinier than your fingernail on your little finger. It's almost impossible to do that, but these people can absolutely get pupils on a head that small in the eyes. Amazing. Never going to do that. And also, again, if you're playing it on a table, I'm three feet, a meter away from it. Nobody's going to see that eyeball. It's one of these things about, is it worth the effort? And is my skill level to that level? And the answer is no, simply. And I don't care. For me, it's all about having fun. And so anyway, I've just mentioned what I've done with the head. So it's light gray, followed by the Agrax wash. And then I do another thin wash on it called Drucci Violet, which is a kind of violety color. And so they kind of have this sort of purpley, pallid skin tone to them. And I'm happy. Okay, there we go. So, so that's that. So what I love about this, and I, I guess I'm, I'm going to keep going... <laughs> when it comes to the world of, of Warhammer. So there I am painting up this stuff and just having fun with it. And, and every time the rules get updated, sometimes they're a good army, sometimes not so much. Got to be honest, I find the zombies a pain to paint because there's so much detail there. And yeah, okay, sometimes it is just a whole bunch of contrast paints. And don't look too closely because you might realize their belt's the same color as their trousers. But if you have to paint something like 50 zombies, there's only so much time in the day to get this detail right. Again, what you actually see on the box art of what the real pros can do with these models, just a whole other level, almost godlike in their skill sets. So, you've got all these knights, and you've got all these aristocrats, and just the attention to detail on some of these figures is just magnificent. There's one figure that if you manage to, to kill them they can turn into a swarm of, of rats and so you get some like rat models and then they can get to fight on in almost like a different form what a vampiric sort of little rule there that's kind of cool so how do they show that if you just look at him kind of looks like a standard vampire he's got cloak he's got big boots etc but if you look what's trailing out the back of his cloak is a whole bunch of rat tails so it's just that kind of detail. There's, there's a little sense of humor to them. And the other thing about them is if you really, really wanted to do the granular detail, there is so much detail on these figures. But also, cleverly, there is actually a way to just kind of ignore the detail and paint it like everything else. And also that looks okay. I just have huge amounts of love for these kinds of, of models. And if this sounds interesting, then hey, you do you. But to show you how old the idea of vampires are in the world of Warhammer, I did a whole episode on Castlevania. So that gave me an opportunity to talk about vampires previously. I, I'm going to guess that came out two years ago. It was a while ago, all right? But it also allowed me to talk about Castlevania, the video game, Castlevania, the animated series. So I've already touched on vampires before, but there's more to talk about, okay? So yeah, they go back hundreds of years as an idea. 
But even in the world of Warhammer, they have an element of, let's say, ancient history about them. What do I mean by that? Well, nowadays, it is a huge business, and I have talked about in the past, about the Black Library, which is the publishing arm of Games Workshop, which is the company that owns Warhammer. So you've got these different brands and things like that, and it's all under Games Workshop. That is the hub. Technically, I keep talking about Warhammer figures. They are technically Citadel miniatures, because that's the name of the brand of the figures. Let's not get complicated about But Black Library was a rebranding of a previous publishing enterprise. And I remember I was this young guy really into, well, basically a teenager, a kid at school who was loving the figures. And it blew my mind that they were actually going to release their own books. Because don't forget, prior to this, you'd had a few books to do with Dungeons and Dragons, perhaps most fam famously the Dragonlance Chronicles. But really, we all knew that the books were coming from, or I should say all the stories were coming from things like Lord of the Rings, which had already been written. And because Tolkien had died, we ain't going to get any more of that. And, you know, there were other very famous fantasy series. But the point is, they weren't, con you know, this was a writer, an author, an actual storyteller, and then that inspires figures rather than somebody who produces games then getting people to go out and write for them. It was so exciting when this stuff came out. And in 1989, under GW Books, that was the original name of their publishing wing, which then later got called the Black Library, we get Jack Yeovil's Drakenfels. So, 1989. And, you know, here it is in rude health in 2023. So we're talking about nearly 35 years later and Games Workshop is still producing books. But it was very different then. As I have, I'll be blunt, moaned about in the past, they produce so many books. Literally, sometimes in the same week, they can produce two or three books. Nobody has the ability to be reading two or three books every single week. The argument is, look, one of them might be an Age of Sigmar book. One of them might be a Warhammer 40,000 book. One of them might be a Blood Bowl book or a Necromunda book or a book specifically for children. But the point is they don't half chuck them out. Nobody can keep up with all of the lore. Or if you do, that is a full-time job. You don't have time to do literally anything else. But back at the beginning, let's be blunt, Games Workshop didn't know if these books were going to sell. So they came out far less frequently. You might get, let's say, one book every other month. Maybe one book every quarter. And that is the kind of speed and not level of intensity that a teenager at school with pocket money can buy these books and keep up with them. And there were some shonky ones. I remember the first time there was stuff to do with Nurgle in a book. I was very excited to see how that would be described because I'd just got the models and it had stuff in my head. But how would it be described in terms of the mindset of a greater demon of Nurgle or something like that? And that particular book, I won't name it, but that particular book was so poorly put together, it literally had the same two pages. So, you know, you're, you're reading blah, 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 and then you get to page 92 and then you realize page 93 is identical to page 92. It's like somebody didn't edit this properly. I'm just rereading it. And actually, it was several different, several pages. It was like 92, 93 is the bit of the story. And then 94, 95 is that same bit of the story. It's like, how did nobody spot this? Anyway, that's another thing. But a lot of these very, very early books are very well loved and remembered because they were, you know, actual 
author, I mean, this is no disrespect for the current ones, but they weren't under these kind of deadlines and pressures, like you're only allowed to tell this bit of the story. In this case, it was like, have you got an idea that fits into the Warhammer fantasy world? In which case, great, write it. And so Drakenfels is a classic example of that. At no point is there sort of like, you know, can you feel people moving figures around a battle table rolling dice? Drakenfels is the story of a bunch of adventurers that go into this castle and fight this sort of like bad guy. So all very standard, shall we say. But this is many years later and they're going back to this castle where they, they thwarted the, the evil. And they're going to recreate it for this sort of like rich person. And the evil is reawakening again and wants revenge on them. So by that little twist already, this is quite unusual and really doesn't have a huge amount to do with the rest of the Warhammer fantasy world. And you got Genevieve, who is the vampire in Drakenfels. It's sort of like a castle. Is the, that's, that's what Drakenfels is. So she's actually one of the heroes. And she's kind of seductive. And- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. She loves her colleagues, but also she's immortal and they're getting older and things like that. And reading Drakenfels is very much a kind of gothic horror novel it is that first and a warhammer fantasy book second basically and it's so good that i think it was on its 30th anniversary i I could be wrong that would put it at 1919 oh sorry 2019 i should say but basically it was reprinted you can get a new copy of it now i actually have my original copy downstairs and it's very dear to me it's one of the few gw books i kept because i recognized it was a really good book and obviously so does games workshop if they're going to republish it and there's a lot of love for it and jack yeovil if you for some reason you ever hear this 
you also really sort of inspired me and entertained me and scared me a little bit with that story. But once again, we get this other area of like vampires in the world of Warhammer Fantasy. Now, the reason why they're not called the Vampire Division or something like that is because the Flesh Eater Courts, the idea is that these are areas of land that have been put under such hard times that the locals started off by dying, you know, various famines have, have happened, and they're just so desperate, they start eating the dead. And that starts corrupting them. So basically, that's where you start with basic cannibalism, and then you end up turning into a sort of zombie or, or something like that. And then there's the vampires as well. Now, in the larger lore, there's a carrion king who looks after all of the vampire courts. He's kind of like the overlord, but he's clashed with Nagash, who is the god of death. I've mentioned the chaos gods, Nagash. They do chaos, if you like. Nagash does death. And what's interesting about Nagash in the world of Warhammer is he actually has different stats depending on whether you're playing him with the Flesh Eater Courts or whether you're doing it with the ghosty people or the kind of skeletal construct people. I'm not going to go into all the names of all this stuff. But yeah, it, it's like, well, hang on, a god's a god, isn't he? And also the other thing about Nagash being a god is, well, yeah, he is very impressive on the battlefield, but he's by no means fallible. So you can actually kill a god on the battlefield, which is all kinds of sort of awesome. <laughs> so there we go. That's the world of Warhammer. I've talked about the painting. I've talked about the history of them. I'm sort of hopefully you, this all sounds sort of cool. And there's a real character to these particular figures. Some of them are quite old. There's like a, a carrion carriage, adored painting. I, I deliberately did it in sub assemblies. One of the few things I did. What what does that mean? It means basically imagine a whole carriage that's just full of dead bodies which you would have in in your army to kind of help regenerate wounds and health if you like for of, of your people but obviously if you've got a pile inside this bone carriage you can't paint them properly so i made sure that i fitted that in later rather than just built the whole thing and then realized i can't get at certain areas let's move on then because as i said you know they see themselves very much as aristocratic and they see themselves very much as part of the hierarchy so what does all that mean in practical terms? Well, it gives me an opportunity to talk about feudalism. This has been in the background of so many other episodes that we've been talking about. And I actually did a talk and explained feudalism. And I had a whole bunch of people who were older than me saying, oh, thank you, Jim. Finally, I now know what this feudal system actually means. So here we go. And this is where, if you like, the vampires will fit into all of this way of building a society. I am actually going to give you the full details. So let's take England, because that's where I am at the moment. And there was a King of England, okay? Now King of Britain, but regardless. And let's go back to somebody, if you have a passing following in history from the feudal period, let's pick William the Conqueror. You know, the guy who actually beat the English and he comes from France and it's 1066. Well, let's say the year is now 1070, okay? The point is this. The king, according to the feudal process, owns all of England. He is the direct landowner. Now, to just slightly muddy the waters, and I said I'll get technical on this, there is church lands as well. And the fact that these church lands don't have to pay the king tax, they kind of get to do their own thing. There's even canon law. So the laws of the land don't apply to churchmen. And there's even this idea that, you know, if you could speak a bit of Latin, you could claim that you're a priest and then get off with all kinds of crimes because as a priest, you couldn't have something like the death penalty meted out on you. If you were caught 
stealing, maybe you'd have to do some sort of penance in terms of like fasting for two days or sit there contemplating to and praying to God. That's a lot better than having your hand cut off. So yeah, a lot of people were trying to get into the church lands and the church lands were huge, vast. This wasn't just like every little parish church. We're talking about some things like the Archbishopric of Canterbury, for example, that area would have been, well, probably most of Canterbury, for starters. So there's this huge amount of church land, which actually grows over time, because I'm a rich noble, I want to go to heaven, I know I've done some bad things, so what am I going to do? I'm going to, do you know what, I'll give you Oxford, okay? Okay, church people, congratulations, you get Oxford, because I'm the Earl of Oxford, so I'm going to give you Oxford as your lands, but then you've got to pray for me now that I'm dead to make sure that I go to heaven. I mean, it's kind of a weird deal when you think about it, but that's genuinely how feudal mindset worked, okay? So, with that in mind, that's where we get the church in, involved in all of this, which leads to tensions, which leads to basically something called the investiture contest, which happens over a century over the whole of Europe. If a bishop is going to own lots of land, who picks the bishops? Because they're a landowner, they have actual power in England, shouldn't the English king pick them? That's one argument. On the other hand, they're a churchman, so shouldn't the Pope pick them? Whatever you may think is the answer to that, well, the point is there was another side that had an opposing view, and throughout the whole of the Middle Ages, that tension existed. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the Germanic principalities or we're talking about England, wherever. It was just a problem. Who actually has more power, the Pope or the local king? So, now that I've told you the tensions between church and state, basically which still exists today in, in a very different way. Now allow me to tell you about how, how the layers of aristocracy get involved. So like I said, king basically owns everything. So when you hear of things like the baron of this, the duke of the other, the count of whatever, then the reality is they don't technically own that area. So there is, for example, the duchy, i.e. there is a duke running it, of Cornwall. Okay, so let's imagine the year is, like I say, 1070, and I have just been given the duchy of Cornwall. I now owe the king, William the Conqueror, some kind of rent for this land. Now, the way it worked in the feudal era is I didn't pay rent in money. Instead, it was agreed, basically, how wealthy is this area? And the wealthier it is, the more troops I owe to the king, specifically knights, because a knight is expensive. They've got the armor. They're going to need multiple horses. They will need to be trained. So they don't come cheap as opposed to just peasant layman archers, levy archers. So with that in mind, the agreement is every time the king is going on a campaign, I have to give you 100 knights so that I can then run Cornwall the way I want to because the king doesn't get any more revenue from it apart from the knights. Now, now that I am the Duke of Cornwall, what do I do with the knights? How do I pay them? Because they're not just going to put their lives at risk for free, and also they're going to need all this armor and stuff like that. But then again, I can't possibly run the whole of Cornwall. So what do I do? I parcel up my area, i.e. Cornwall, into a hundred little areas for the knights to run. So the reality is a knight, yes, they are obliged. When I say strap your armor on, you're going to France and you're going to war, they can't say no. But actually, most of the year, they're actually more worried about what's going on on the local farm and what's the revenues. And then ultimately, at the bottom of the pile, you have the peasants who are tied to the land. 
because they are in Cornwall, and therefore they're part of my area, they're not allowed to wander off to London or, or wherever they might want to go. They have to work this land, and the agreement there is they can keep some of the produce for themselves, which they'll obviously need to keep themselves alive, but if, if it's been a particularly good year, they be, might be able to sell some stuff, which might allow them to get an extra cow or something like that. So there's a way to, in theory, improve your lot, but we are still talking about a medieval peasant, and you are the, absolutely the bottom of the pile. But then, to everybody else, there is some of this revenue coming in from the lands to the knights, and then the knights can take a large cut of that, but then they're also going to have to give, because it is ultimately me, the Duke of Cornwall's lands, they'll have to then feed it back up to me. So it is this kind of pyramid of power, with the king at the top, then there's a small chunk of aristocracy, then there is the lower aristocracy, that's basically what a knight is, and then at the bottom of the heap, you've got the peasants. And that really is what the feudal system is, and in terms of aristocracy, you'd basically put the vampires from the flesh-eater courts, they would basically be the equivalent of the Duke of Cornwall. But as you can see, you're actually spending a lot of time doing heavy admin if you're a duke, as opposed to going around and feeding on the blood of people if you were just having fun as a vampire. Which brings me to the really interesting question mark as I said, you got that one person in Transylvania in the 1400s. Listen, don't mention the war. I'm not going to say his name again, that everybody sees as the starting point for vampires. And yes, he is alluded to in the original Bram Stoker Dracula novel. But there is somebody else that is quite often quoted as being, this is somebody that clearly has an influence on these idea of these sort of like, aristocratic blood-sucking bloody blahs and very quickly after their death the sort of vampiric type legends began i'm talking about elizabeth bathory who lived from 1560 to 1614 so she's living about a century after that guy in transylvania and the area that she lived in was part of the Kingdom of Hungary that, like that place in Transylvania, was also in the throes of fighting the Ottoman Empire. So you've got this threats from outside. But just to be super technical about this and shows you how complicated European history is, while she was absolutely running her castle in the Kingdom of Hungary, today that area is actually in the country of Slovakia. So there we go. That's, that's that. Right, now, the point is this, Elizabeth Bathory was actually charged with her and four servants of abducting, torturing, and killing hundreds of girls and young women. And now this is where it all gets a bit complicated, because the accusations against her are so outlandish, so sort of like, this is just a Hammer horror movie, a lot of people say this clearly has to be trumped up charges. And there are loads of examples throughout history of people accusing somebody else, and clearly the whole thing's made up. And indeed, as soon as we get to women in history, if we're trying to make them look bad in history, suddenly they're basically too big for their boots. They're, they're in a position of power, but they're being too manly with that power, and that's just not acceptable which is obviously horribly sexist, and let's not go into it. So that's charge number one. And the other charge against women in history, if you're trying to sort of knock them down a peg or two, 
is something to do with having a like a voracious sexual appetite. Think of Catherine the Great. If you heard that she died a certain way with a horse, that is a lie. It's an outright lie. That's not what happened at all. Okay? But that shows you how long some of these lies can hang around for. So, it is worth pointing out. Let's sort of flip-flop it around. Everything I have just said, you know, shows you that, that we have to take these things with caution. And obviously, in the 1500s, things like courts aren't necessarily like modern-day courts. And even if modern courts, that you can get a miscarriage of justice, imagine what they were like before video evidence and DNA testing and yada, yada, yada. So this is the stuff that you might want to consider. At the time of her arrest, more than 300 eyewitnesses and local people carried out charges against her. Basically said they saw her doing bad things or their daughter had gone to the castle and was never seen again. And while you might turn around and say, I'm sure some of these people might hold a grudge, to have 300 people holding a grudge, that seems excessive, but it's not impossible to say that they were exaggerating things. One of the other things is that when she was actually arrested, they found multiple dead and dying women in the castle, which seems pretty good evidence. But of course, we don't have those bodies. There are no photographs. Obviously, this is way before photographic evidence. So we only have the chronicles, which we've already said, we've got to treat with a little bit of caution here as to whether or not they're telling the truth or not. The other thing is that Bathory, Elizabeth Bathory, she was Protestant. Whereas the Habsburgs, who were trying to raise their power in the area, they were Catholic. Is this a religious thing? Because unlike the guy before, where everybody in, in Europe was the same Christianity, now we've got these two different vying forms of Christianity. And considering she died in 1614, the Thirty Years' War is triggered only a few years after her death, 1618, which is 30 years of violence, which by and large you can split between Protestant and Catholic in Europe. And it was horrifically violent, the Thirty Years' War. So maybe this is a prelude to that. Except there's a problem with that as well, because the first complaints against her were not carried out by some kind of Catholic agent of the Habsburgs, but by a Lutheran priest. Now, if you're not all up on your differences between Lutherans and Protestants and things like that, just think about a Lutheran as a Protestant who thinks other Protestants are having way too much fun with their religion and we need to get super serious about it. So... Putting that in mind, seeing they're a priest, they are very unlikely to be sort of trumping these stories up to just have their own way and certainly has no particular way of doing this. So I'm giving you as much as I can around her to say yes or no about it. You decide, is this a much maligned woman from history or is this what we would call now a serial killer with unlimited power, allowed to basically go as extreme as she wanted to until she was finally stopped by the authorities. I, I don't actually, you know, I'm not going to tell you which one I'm going to go down on the side of. Love to get your thoughts. I'm at Jem Deducci on Twitter. Let me know your thoughts on that one. The thing I'm going to leave you with, because this is all pretty grim, because if it's true, that's a lot of innocent women who were killed. And actually, very quickly, like I said, we kind of get vampiric ideas from this. We get ideas that the reason why she was killing legends are spread up very rapidly about Elizabeth Bathory because look, 
you know, the story is extreme. If it genuinely happened, then that really is some of the most extreme behavior in, in all of history. And so it wouldn't be very hard to then start constructing something so menacing about it. So with that in mind, what I just wanted to add to that is she's obviously an aging woman. So she, the theory is she's bleeding these women to sort of drain them of their blood, which is something that the other guy in Transylvania never did to try and remain young forever. The other thing we have about her is allegedly, none, none of this stuff is, you know, this is all definitely made up, is the idea that she had these women drained of blood and then bathed in their blood. So this is, this is far more vampiric behavior than anything associated with that other guy. And therefore, I think there is a pretty strong argument to say Elizabeth Bathory is probably the starting point of the more new romantic or, or sort of like, you know, uh, age of enlightenment idea of vampires rather than anything else. But the last thing I am going to tell you about is, like I said, perhaps Games Workshop's biggest failure, which is also to do with these kind of vampires and stuff like this. They created a kind of board game with lots of models in it and very sort of like flexible different board game. You could build it in different ways that got everybody super excited about it that came out in 2021 called Cursed City. But of course, 2021, we're at the time of COVID. And so there was all this hype about it. And they said, oh, you know, this is going to be a game. You're going to be able to play it. And don't worry, it's, you know, it'll be out for ages and yada, yada. And then it came out and it sold out almost immediately. It seemed to have gone completely from not only the website, but also all of the Games Workshop or Warhammer Shop stores around the whole of the UK within five days. They'd hyped it up so well, it then sold like hotcakes. And obviously, we're in the middle of the pandemic there, or sort of not in the middle of the pandemic, but pandemic's still going on in April of 2021. And so we're quite often sitting at home, aren't we? And I managed to get a copy and I didn't realize how hot it was because then Games Workshop ran out and they did quite an unconscionable thing. Rather than saying, look, because of the global pandemic, we're unable to deal with this, blah, blah, blah. Instead, they basically gaslit everybody and went, well, we said it was for limited time only. No, you didn't. You specifically did not do that. And various videos and things like that were taken down. So that really annoyed people. Now, fortunately, everything got sorted out and it came back again, again, with no apology and no explanation in 2022, but for about a year, there were these people who really had their hearts set on it, who then were told, no, no, sorry, it sucks to be you, you didn't actually get a copy. But basically, the Cursed City, you're basically playing a band of adventurers roaming around and fighting zombies and sometimes vampires and things like that. It's a really, really cool idea. And it's also really, really similar to Drakenfels, which is where I said, that is probably one of the best books that you can get from Games Workshop. That's it from me, and as always, another episode coming soon.